Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'm going to be talking to Henry Sanderson, who is the executive editor of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and author of the new book, Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green, about why the battery industry, the global battery industry, needs to invest $200 billion in new gigafactories to meet the demand for batteries as electric vehicles uh, expand and we uh, start using more stationary storage. So welcome to the interview, Henry. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited about this. And in your, uh, you know, I subscribe to your weekly newsletter and you're always talking about the various minerals and that are going into this and you know, prices and, uh, you know, supply and, and so on. And the impression that I get is that the 2020s, uh, I often say they're the d- disruptive decade of this energy transition, but there is an absolute madhouse gold rush going on to develop the battery supply chain, all the way from critical minerals to to battery plants and the various stages in between. Is that a fair comment? There is absolutely this rush going on because the transition to electric cars is happening much quicker than than people thought. And this is partly being led by by government policy, right? By we've seen in the last week, California saying, you know, they're gonna ban sales of gasoline cars. We've seen the UK have a similar target. Um, you know, President Biden has an ambitious target, the EU, China. So a lot of government policy backing this transition. And it's just an enormous task to, to convert, uh, you know, the current automobile fleet to, to electric vehicles. And we are seeing uh, this race because there needs to be a huge amount of infrastructure uh, new battery factories, new mines, new processing built in order for this transition to happen. It's not just as simple as a current car factory just switches to electric tomorrow. Uh, there's a fascinating and extended supply chain that involves a lot of geopolitics and a lot of different uh, countries that you might not have thought about before. Well, let's talk about that because I was looking at uh, a graph from uh, uh, S&P Global uh, the other day that uh, showed the various parts of the battery supply chain. So critical minerals, then you uh, refine yeah. and process the minerals into battery metals. Then you uh, you make the components of the uh, of the cells, including yeah. anodes and cathodes, and then you uh, finally assemble all of that into into a battery. And China's dominance in this in this area is just staggering. I mean, they have almost eighty percent of the refining and processing capacity. So if if President Biden wants a North American uh, EV manufacturing industry right now, you'd have to send all the lithium and the nickel and cobalt. You'd have to send it all to China to be processed and then bring it back. Uh, and so building that capacity, that seems to be an enormous task to me. It is really enormous task because the current situation is, as you said, that China, you know, China is not rich in a lot of these resources. So in a way, they're very reliant on, on, on overseas countries. But basically, China dominates in the processing stage, the battery material stage, the battery production stage. 
and uh, now they're trying to get into producing electric vehicles for the world. But it is, a, it is an enormous task for the US and Europe to catch up because, as you said, you know, China produces you know, some 79% of lithium-ion batteries. But if you look at the, the cathode and anode production, you know, it's over 80%, you know, 90%. Um, and in the chemical processing for, for some minerals, you know, like uh, copper and cobalt, it's also, uh, you know, 70% higher than that. So if, if the US um, is saying, which, which, you know, which, which they want, which is we don't want China involved in the supply chain, um, yet we want to accelerate the transformation to electric vehicles and clean energy. It is going to be very, very, very tough to, to build new capacity essentially from, from scratch and make sure it's cost competitive because the price of electric cars has been going the other way. We need them to come down, right? We need mass market electric cars that are affordable, yet the cost is going the other way, um, you know, partly because of the speed of the transition, but also you know, localizing some of these uh, supply chain steps, you know, producing some of these things in US and Europe, probably going to be more expensive than, than producing in China. So that's my big, big fear at the moment, which is that if relations with, with China deteriorate, if we can't have China involved in any of these stages, we might well be facing higher costs for batteries, higher costs for electric vehicles. Well, um, one, I, I, what's your opinion on the likelihood that the United States, which is very good at scaling up things? Now, I know they, yeah. you know, they, they've ceded a lot of that to China on the manufacturing front, and I, I see a lot of angst uh, in the United States right now, going, yes. "Oh my goodness, why?" You know, we started this 30, 40 years ago, and now it's come back to bite us. Uh, and this is, you know, it was now we realize maybe it was a mistake. Uh, and so now we have to we have to gain regain that that advantage. But the Americans remember and know how to scale things up. They do things in a, in a big way. Uh, I so think we should, are, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, what are the what are the odds, do you think, that America is up to the task? I think U.S. is 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 got very good odds. And we've got to remember Tesla, which is the, you know, the leader in electric vehicles, um, you know, the, the company that sort of pushed the world towards electric vehicles is an American company. And they're very advanced in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, right? And they understand the need for, for building out this supply chain. Um, it's not, a lot of it is not rocket science. And, and the US now that it's, it's galvanized by, by government policy, by, by government incentive, I think stands a very good chance of, of building a supply chain to compete with China. The problem is it's not going to happen overnight, right? And, and if we're talking about, you know, California banning gasoline by, by 2030, you know, we're talking about this decade, right? And yes, the US can scale. There's no doubt about that. The US can build these things. It's incredibly innovative. It's got the talent. Um, now it's got the government policy. It can do it. Uh, you know, th the problem is just that can it cut China out tomorrow, you know, or by 2024? Um, and I don't think so. And I think they can do it, but it's going to take time. And, and during this decade, we may well have to have some compromise about how much we want China involved in, in the supply chain. Otherwise, we might delay the transition, right? And, and that would be harmful for global emissions. We need to transition fast and we need, we need the best way to get there. Um, and in my mind, I think it's more about diversifying supply chains rather than having a complete non-China non supply chain. 
Let's talk about the amount of capital that's involved here. Now, you say $200 billion by 2030. It takes a factory two to three years to build. Uh, we're going to have to spend $29 billion uh, every year to 2028. Now, uh, Mark Carney, who uh, used to be yeah. our head of our uh, central bank and then head of your central yes, bank at the right. time, well known, but he's he's made it very clear that now that there is uh, the policy in the U.S., the policy framework uh, that that capital needs, the capital is ready to go to work. They're ready to be it's ready to invest in the various parts of the supply chain. Now, what's your take on that? I think there is capital available, and it's not huge sums we're talking about. Two hundred billion. You know, it's only slightly more than the total wealth of uh, you know Jeff Bezos. It's it's not it's it's. You know, the, the capital's around, um, and I think what we're seeing is now the policies in place in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, we've actually seen a flurry of announcements in the last two months, you know, about 15 billion, we estimate, um, in new battery announcements uh, for the US, you know, so we're well, you know, we're talking about 200 billion, this is 15 billion announced in two months, you know, the capital is available, you just need the supportive policy, um, you, you need the sort of focus, um, and, and that's happening now. So I'm very confident that, that that's going to be built. But where the problem is, is on, on the mine side. I think this is the biggest problem for, for the US and, and Europe is getting mines permitted, getting local communities to, to agree to having mines. And, and this is why I think, um, you know, Canada, Australia, countries with, with mining history, with, with mining industries, you know, can play an important role because they built other mines before. Why not? Why not lithium? Uh, you know, why not? Why not nickel? Um, so I, I, th I think it can happen. But again, mines are the biggest bottleneck. I think because it takes can take up to ten years to uh, to build new mines. Um, but but not but not only that. Um, this industry is hard to be cost competitive. I mean, processing facilities. You know, for things like lithium, they also take time to build. They run over budget. They run they run over time. So. It, you know, it ain't easy competing with China. They uh, they're very good at um, efficient manufacturing. Um, you know, low cost low cost manufacturing. Um, but yeah, just so a final point. They they also face the issue, which is a lot of China's uh, manufacturing has been built on coal fired power, and and this is no longer going to be acceptable for electric vehicle batteries, right? So the whole world faces the issue of trying to make make things using green energy, and and obviously that is. Um, advantage for some countries and disadvantage for others. Well, let's talk about that because that comes up often in my interviews with, with energy experts uh, on this area is that uh, access to abundant, low-cost green yes. electricity has become a huge competitive advantage. And I know Canadians don't understand the extent to which it is a competitive advantage. I, I talked to one, the head of, of uh, a company in Washington uh, that is in the process of uh, yep. building factories around uh, silicon anodes. And they had just signed uh, yes. a big deal with Scylla, uh, I think, if I remember correctly. Yes. And, and he made the point that when he was with Tesla, uh, that the that access to enough clean electricity was the number one uh, siting requirement when they were thinking about building about building factories. It's that it's that important. And Canada, 
uh, has, you know, uh, 70, uh, it's about 82% now, I think, uh, of, of our electricity is currently either uh, hydro or low carbon, like wind and solar and, and nuclear. Precisely. And that would seem to give Canada a huge advantage in this race to... Uh, huge advantage. Build, yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing in Quebec. It's a huge advantage. And what we're seeing in Quebec, which is interesting, is the, you know, clustering effect. Once, once you have a reach a certain threshold or, or inertia takes hold, right? You have uh, one part of supply chain situated in Quebec, then another situates there, and then you get a clustering effect, um, which obviously lowers transportation costs, logistics, etc. And I think that's what we're going to see. You know, we're going to see uh, cathode manufacturing in Quebec. We're going to see nickel sulfate production. We're going to see possibly you know, battery recycling, cell manufacturing. And I think you're right. One of the key reasons is, is the abundant hydropower because not only from a cost point of view, but car makers now are very keen to decarbonize their entire supply chains. They've made promises about having a, you know, carbon neutral vehicle, carbon neutral production. So that's that's also keen from that. They're keen for that from a marketing and a consumer uh, perspective. But, you know, it just makes sense too, right? If we're we're moving away from fossil fuels to electric cars. We don't want to have a carbon intense supply chain, right? It, it just defeats, not the whole purpose, but it, it just defeats, um, you know, defeats our aim, which is to reduce CO2 emissions, right? Or greenhouse gas emissions. Now, this is, you raise an interesting point because I've interviewed experts, uh, you know, years ago uh, who were talking about consumer acceptance of electric vehicles. And, you know, I think five years ago, uh, I was interviewing a Lux researcher and he said, look, our surveys show that the average EV owner is a couple with a high income couple with uh, sort of a green consciousness as a yes. word. You know, they're, they're worried about worried about climate change within those five years, consumer acceptance of EVs, acceptance of the need to combat climate change has just exploded. I mean, it is now it is now taken for granted, I think, that the major, a substantial majority of people uh, in most countries uh, accept all of these things and want and yes. want to switch to green energy to clean energy. And, and to, that presents a very interesting uh, issue for for these companies. Because now consumer sentiment, consumer preference has made the switch. And that and that means the market is driving a lot of this in addition to policies. Yes, that's right. Consumers just, you know, it's a given now. They want, they want their products to be green, to be environmentally friendly, especially if, if it is designed to be to be a green product, right? They, they don't want uh, bad things to be happening behind the scenes. I think consumers don't want to be greenwashed, right, anymore. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, they're very alert to to risks of being manipulated and, and greenwashed. So I think you know they they don't want that. But I would say um, absolutely, electric vehicles have moved from being a sort of niche green uh, green product to 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 being a mainstream product. But what's driving that also is these government policies, because a lot of consumers are thinking, well, twenty thirty is not that far off. You know, I won't be able to. Uh, to, to buy a gasoline uh, vehicle then. So, well, my next car has got to be electric, right? And, and, and there's this tipping point where 
it's the, the value, the perceived future value of a gasoline vehicle to clients, right? And you might, if you want to keep your car for you know five plus years, you might you might as well get an electric. It's the inevitability of of the transition that I think is that is in uh, in people's minds. Saying all that, however, I do think EVs are still a premium product, and and that's the critical thing is bringing the cost down, and and that's also consumer dependent because what we've seen in China is that they have smaller vehicles with smaller batteries that are cheaper but they drive you know they obviously drive less far but certain consumers are willing to accept that um, for their driving needs and i think in the west you've got to question how much we need big batteries and big vehicles especially for for city driving you know how much can we accept cheaper uh, vehicles with smaller batteries that's the kind of transition i think needs to happen that's that's happening happening in china you know best-selling ev in china is a tiny uh ruling mini it's called you know not a tesla so um that's that's the next thing that needs to happen we've got to bring the costs down to these vehicles right i did an interview with that uh with bill russell from automobility a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago about about uh that and the five thousand dollar ev uh, yeah. in China. And if that ever, if they ever begin to export those, especially, especially to developing countries where lower co capital costs is important, watch out. Uh, well, look, yeah. I want to talk about this agreement that uh, Prime Minister, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau signed with Volkswagen and Mercedes-Benz. It's, it's not a, a binding, it's not a trade agreement, it's no. like an MOU. And, yeah. and it's see, are, are some of the OEMs like, you know, the Volkswagen and Mercedes Benz, uh, are they talking directly to governments the, the signing these MOUs give them a leg up in terms of getting critical minerals and, and the yeah. things they, you know, developing their supply chains. I thought it was fascinating this visit and these agreements, because it shows the, the high level strategic importance of uh critical minerals batteries to these companies right and also to to the countries that have them right this is the highest level um you can get and let's not forget these these german companies a few years ago were saying oh batteries are commodity uh you know we don't need to worry about batteries we just buy them from suppliers you know on the market they're they're, they're sort of commodity business and now they realize holy cow you know in the the, the people who are going to be successful in this ev revolution are those that have uh, access to a supply chain of batteries and, and raw materials. So it's, it's interesting to see that. And, and the high level nature is just is just fascinating, right? That is happening at a government to, to, to company level. And that reflects the sort of geopolitical nature of what, what's going on, which is essentially that the West, um, you know, the allied countries, the, you know, essentially the five eyes um, sort of, you know they want to to build a non-chinese supply chain right uh, canada australia korea japan us and, and and that's sort of at the center of this geopolitical uh geopolitical priority and and if you look at what's happening in the us it's interesting because it is the korean and japanese uh companies that are helping the us automakers uh shift and and, and go electric and um you know what what do i what i think is that Canada can can provide the raw materials for the US market, um, you know, Australia, perhaps as well. But I do think we need to see more than just high level language, we need to see uh, detailed money going in detailed investment going in. Um, in a way, building the battery cells is the easy part, right, building these battery cell plants, um, building the mines and the, and the processing is, is much harder, but we need to see money coming in. It's, 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 it's interesting, these high level strategic agreements, but we need to see uh, details, right? 
<laughs> well, I can tell yes. you in Canada that it's uh, we have an you know old saying: Canada talks a good game uh, in these yeah. areas, but doesn't always uh, uh, you know walk the talk. So we'll see how we'll be following that uh, trend closely. I want to talk uh, finish up our interview, uh, Henry, talking about prices. So in your latest newsletter, you talked about how Chinese battery grade lithium carbonate prices have jumped ninety yeah. percent. Lithium hydroxide. 127%. Cobalt and nickel have fallen. So these are all battery uh, battery yes. uh, materials. Um, what will be the effect of high prices on bringing new supply into the market? Yeah, it's a good question because we've seen lithium prices have been very uh, you know, robust and still in the Chinese domestic market, we're continuing to see upward momentum in, in, in lithium carbonate prices. Whereas cobalt and nickel, as you say, have have fallen, and I think lithium lithium is the real problem because we do need we do need more supply, and you know high prices is definitely going to lead to more supply. Um, but you, you're seeing demand increase so rapidly; it's going to be hard in the next few years for any of this new supply to to meet all of the demand. And, and I think the market's going to be quite quite tight uh, in, in the next few years. But definitely high prices brings on supply it always does in in commodity markets but lithium is a is a tricky market in that you know it's a chemical market that you know even if you you know bring on new supplies got to meet qualifications got to meet battery grade standards it's not it's not an easy process of just digging it up um and then also if you add to that the demand for us and europe to have to bypass china you know a lot of australian lithium is sent to china to be processed if we're saying we don't want China involved. You know, you've got to build new processing facilities in in Europe and and uh, North America. You know, what's the cost of doing that? How quickly can you can you get a qualified product? So yes, it will bring on new supply, but it's 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 not easy. We often see delays. We often see capital overruns. Um, but yes, lithium is is not a scarce mineral. Um, we can we can we can produce more of it. It seems to me here there is a, a really important role for in those countries that have you know sort of staked out the their desire to they've expressed their desire to build battery supply chains right from minerals to building assembling yes. the, the batteries that that you know the companies can only scale at you know at, at, at X rate the supply chain they can build mines at X rate the unknown variable here is government involvement and can government provide additional capital can they lower the cost of capital can they streamline permitting and environmental uh, yeah. uh, approval processes and it seems to me that those countries where government decides that it is going to take this seriously get involved be very proactive uh, will probably have an advantage would you agree or disagree I think definitely, you know, I think we're realizing in the West that, you know, we have to have an industrial type policy, um, you know, like, like, like China's had, it's been, it's been successful in, in China. Can we copy everything they do? No, of course not. But I think we do need to have government policies. We can see already from this Inflation Reduction Act, how it, you know, how it catalyzes um, investment. Um, so policy has, has such a, such a critical um, part to play. Um, but for sure, you know, it can it can not work out. Um, this was the big problem with with during Obama's time, you know, that 
the US Department of Energy did lend some money to, to companies that went bankrupt. And this was seized upon as, you know, well, government shouldn't get involved in, you know, trying to select winners and, and, and boost boost certain sectors or companies. But, you know, you got to remember Tesla came out of that one of one of those programs, loan programs. So it was a was a huge success. So I think this this IRA is is very well designed. Um, the sort of production tax credits really incentivizes, um, you know, scaling up of battery production. So for sure, you got to you got to have policy. And and as as I said before, the the policy of banning sales of gasoline vehicles by X date it really does uh, change consumers' minds and it changes the way industry sees things because there's a certainty, right? And there's a policy certainty, and yeah, that that's what we need. I want to get back to your comments uh, about um, uh, government's role here. And uh, you mentioned Obama and the, the solar company that went bankrupt with Solyndra, if I remember yeah. correctly. And Mariana Mazzucato, the economist, uh, kind of addresses that issue. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Americans talk, you know, they talk about, you know, free enterprise and free markets and bootstrapping and capitalism yeah. and all that nonsense. But at the end of the day, they have decades, like certainly since the Second World War, where, where government does this all, has done this all yeah. many, many times. And you bring yeah. up the, the issue. And the point I want to make here, she says, don't look at what Americans say, look at what Americans do. And Americans yep. have very, when they are prosperous and when they're growing sectors of their economy, they're very aggressive with industrial policy and they do pick winners and losers. They do pick winners and they do pour uh, a lot of money into de-risking those emerging sectors. And, yep. and I think the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has, has the Americans are returning to their roots. They know they're behind. They know they need to catch up and yeah. rhetoric be damned. They're going to do what has always put them at made them number one in various sectors, which is to get the government involved in a big way. I totally agree. And if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, it, it is a climate bill, you know, in all but name. And it's it's quite protectionist, right? It's saying, you know, we, you know, the cars, they've got to be assembled in um, U.S. battery components, got to be assembled in North America. You know, it's similar to what China did a few years ago, where, where it told, essentially said only Chinese uh, battery manufacturers can get get the, the subsidy, right, and effectively ban foreign battery companies from, from the market. It's a similar sort of thing, and it, it is very protectionist, and we're already seeing Korea being quite unhappy uh, about some of the provisions, right, which is a which is sort of fascinating situation because the U.S., as I said earlier, needs Korean companies to to build this supply chain in the U.S. But Korea is is unhappy because it is very protectionist, and you're, and you're exactly right. It's uh, it, it, it's a real uh, government government getting involved, but I think they've done it in a, in, in a clever way um, to really incentivize you know some of these production tax credits, etc. So. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting to see the US catch up. There's just so much potential, right? And um, we've also seen in Europe that a lot of the ind industrial policy there has worked in, in the sense of encouraging um, battery battery cell development. Right, I, I would agree. And uh, I think the challenge we have in Canada is galvanizing ourselves quickly enough to seize these opportunities that will be created uh, by the United States, uh, basically, it's like an arms race, you yeah. know, from here on in to catch China. And and if you want to play, and government is prepared to come to the table, and if capital is prepared to come to the table, and we can we can either attract the companies 
or grow domestic companies, whatever it takes. But if we can do that, Canada stands to be a big winner. And if we yep. drag our feet, which is normally what we do, Canada will either be a loser or, you know, only enjoy a modest, a modest benefit from this big boom that's that's uh, already beginning. So, well, look, Henry, thank you very much for this. Really enjoyed your insights. We'll have you back for uh, for more That'd interviews in the future. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it.